Welcome to episode three of our Bridging the Motherhood Divide series on Rich Text. I'm Claire. And I'm Emma. And today we're going to be talking about the egg freezing boom that we've seen during COVID. I'm really excited to get into this topic. Uh, And joining us today to discuss it is our dear friend and former producer, Caitlin Boguki, who actually did a round of egg freezing early this year. Hi. It's so nice to see you both. It's this so great treat. to get the gang back together to talk this is, about. This is OG here to make friends, people. <laughs> yeah. And it feels fitting that we're talking about egg freezing because I feel like so many women that I know from being on The Bachelor got their eggs frozen this year. Oh my God. It's like a little mini Bachelor Nation trend as well as like a national trend. Look, anything surrounding fertility that needs to be paid for and thus advertised. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is a ripe ground for Bachelor alums. And I don't even mean that as a criticism because frankly, this shit is expensive. If someone offered me a free round of egg freezing, it would (laughs) be hard to say no. (laughs) Oh yeah, oops. Oh, was I not trying to get sponsored? (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. Um, But yes, Caitlin, we are so glad to have you here and to discuss this. And I do want to call out that one of the articles that we are using for reference uh, in the Lily, Becca Kufrin is widely quoted in. So yeah, really feels right. Yeah. Caitlin, do you just feel like we're back in like those, those early years of starting here to make friends in like a fashion closet at HuffPost. (laughs) Yes. I always knew one day we'd be talking about egg freezing together. Yeah. In the midst of a global pandemic. Right. Yeah. That's what we, we, we've been building towards ever since that first episode. It was always (laughs) going to end up here. Um, So the egg freezing boom has been kind of the actual baby boom of the pandemic. Like initially there was this idea that couples were going to just like have babies because they were trapped at home together and birth control doesn't exist. And they were just gonna be like, oops, we're having sex again, which we weren't before because we were commuting to the office and now we're having sex, we're having babies. I never really understood the logic behind the pandemic baby boom idea but it didn't materialize. People did not want to have babies during a global pandemic, as it turns out. But a lot of women froze their eggs. Uh, I think we have, uh, we looked at a few sources on this. The Lily has uh, had an article um, in which they reported that uh, New York University's Langone Fertility Center saw an 83% increase in women freezing their eggs. Um, between 2019 and 2021. That is a large increase to me. You know, that seems like a lot. Uh, Why do we think this is happening? I mean, I think that this is such an interesting thing. I feel like there's been sort of this perfect storm of factors. Uh, Fun fact, I was actually in the midst of working on a reported feature about this when we got laid off at HuffPost and I had to chuck all of that reporting, but I had done a bunch of interviews before that happened um, with doctors who work in this space. And they were sort of saying that um, part of this is simply that, you know, people had time away 
from the office. So it was easier to just like get a medical procedure and not have to recover in front of all of your colleagues or navigate taking time off. That's a big reason. Um, obviously just the fact that we were kind of, especially white collar workers, were kind of trapped at home with a lot of time to sort of think about what we wanted our futures to look like stripping away a lot of the things, frankly, that you get to do when you don't have children or a partner. Um, and then finally, which I think is a really important component is that the pandemic sort of happened to come during a moment where there was already a pretty steady increase of companies, especially like tech companies, um, expanding their healthcare packages and benefits to include fertility preservation credits and to cover egg freezing or like partner with fertility clinics in some capacity to make this procedure just more accessible to at least a certain sect of workers. So I think it was sort mm -hmm. of this perfect storm of those factors combining to create this sort of for lack of a better term, unique opportunity for women. To <laughs> you sound, you sound yeah. like you're like selling egg preservation. Yeah, I know. Like, this I'm, is a unique opportunity to, to freeze your eggs. In a I really mean, it, dark way. Yeah, it is really, I mean, when you think about the demographic of women who are staying home uh, during the pandemic and not doing their usual like travel or having the same sort of outside of the home work obligations as they used to have. You're talking about a huge overlap with the demographic of women whose health benefits cover egg freezing. Right. You know, so it really is like exactly in that Venn diagram uh, of women who are like, this is not only something I have maybe financial access to, now I can deal with all of these shots and the hormonal like misery of taking all those shots and all the inconveniences when I'm not running all over, um, traveling across the country, anything like that. Um, Caitlin, we wanted to ask you, like when you were thinking about making this decision, like what factors were in your mind, um, especially at, like in terms of the timing, but also generally like, the decision to freeze your eggs. Yeah. So as you were saying, like, I, I feel like I was in a really lucky position in that my company offered this as a benefit. They basically provide a stipend for anything related to fertility. Um, so if you're going through IVF, you can apply the funds that way. Um, I believe you can even use the funds if you're pursuing adoption. Um, and so it's just this sort of lump sum that they offer every employee and you can take it or leave it. So I don't think I would have really thought about it too in depth had I not been in that position. Um, and obviously I was at home during the pandemic. Um, I live in New York, I live by myself. So I had a plenty of downtime to think about that. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, there was no winning in the pandemic. I think everyone was like having an awful time no matter what, but I feel like, you know, there was definitely times where I was like, it'd be so cool if I had like a child right now, you know, like it would be so nice to, you know, you'd hear about families and stuff like that. So it was certainly on my mind. Um, but yeah. And then I was just like, okay, I sort of made this arbitrary deadline. I had been thinking about it for about a year before I did it. And I thought, well, why don't I just do it before I turn 34? So I kind of had this arbitrary deadline of doing it. And I did it like within like I think I got it done like two weeks before I turned 34. So right under the deadline. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. So that was like, 
why I chose the timing. Um, and yeah, I think like it was, sorry, I'm staying with my friend right now. You can maybe hear her in the background, but uh, it's okay. This is just the real and raw experience we bring on Rich <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I should have had soundproofing. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of what was leading to my decision. I don't know for sure if I want children or not. I have no set plans. I know that I don't want to have a child by myself. Uh, so that is something I, but aside from that, I don't know anything for sure. I just thought I have this, you know, opportunity to do it. I have the time I have. <laughs> I can hide away from others, you know, like, why not? (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting. Like, it seems like you're saying that during the pandemic, like having a child seemed like more attractive to you. Like, why do you think that? Because it's, I feel like I've heard this from, from some people without children. And then everyone I know with children is like, God, I wish I didn't have children right now. Um, So I'm curious, like what your kind of perception of people with families was at this time and like what made that seem more attractive maybe than it had been before well I want to say that like it it was sort of just I feel like you're during the pandemic it was kind of natural to sort of fantasize about any other situation but your own because everyone was having a hard time And then the thought of just like having a family just seemed kind of lovely, you know, like when I'm sort of at my apartment, uh, maybe ordering a pizza for one, like, you know, it was just sort of like, it would be so nice right now if it was like, I had a family, if I was doing something with them, but then, you know, I would talk to parents that I work with and the realities of actually balancing a family are obviously extremely challenging. And I definitely appreciate that, but I feel like, you know, because dating had slowed down because I felt kind of like a lack of momentum, you know, it's just like, well, if I ever do want a family, like maybe this is like something I can do to like, you know, kind of hedge my bets a little bit. Yeah. It's almost operates as like a security policy, even if it's just a, a mental thing, like it's definitely something that, that I considered, like, as you both know, I went in for a consultation and I was Mm -hmm. thinking a lot about doing egg freezing. Um, but Buzzfeed only offered a credit of like 20% off, which, you know, Caitlin, maybe we can like kind of go through some of the costs, but that's, that's a, that's great, but it's, it still ends up being a lot of money. And then of course we got laid off and I didn't even have that. And, and for a moment, Emma, I was like, why is it relevant? What Buzzfeed's plan was? We've never worked for Buzzfeed. Like this past year is just like a blur for in my 23 mind. days. And also we, <laughs> we still live with, but well, you, you were able to get on, you have a husband, but I still live with Buzzfeed's healthcare plan. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that is why um, they are yeah. still fresh in my mind, but yeah, of course there is, you know, also something to note is that like we, you know, I kept Buzzfeed's healthcare after we got laid off, but because these like fertility credit programs fall outside of health insurance, it's like a separate benefit tied to the company. So if you are not more like a perk, right. It's a perk. Like you're, you know, in New York state, um, you only can qualify to get any coverage for fertility preservation if you are considered medically infertile. So Mm. that means that like, unless you are in a very lucky situation, like Caitlin is, um, you are going to shell out a lot of money and you're going to 
get no subsidization unless you find a way to apply for like outside financial assistance. And it is interesting that like the money piece can make all the difference in terms of pushing someone over the edge to do this, especially someone like, like both Caitlin and I are somewhat ambivalent about whether we want kids. And so Mm. there's a lot about this procedure that's like invasive, it's expensive. Um, and (laughs) and we can get into that, but I don't know. It is interesting how it feels like people were just sort of like weighing all the factors and being like, do I have the time? Do I have the money? Do I really want a child? Like you kind of needed like two out of the three. Yeah. I feel like it really speaks to like the, the biological clock pressure that women are under when it comes to sorting their personal life out that like, I'm sure that for a single men out there, it wasn't their favorite thing necessarily to lose a year of dating. But for women, there's this additional thing of like, all right, what can I do to like still accomplish something that moves my personal life goals forward this year? Like if I'm not out there dating as, as frequently as I was before, if dating has become really complicated and slowed down in certain ways, like what's something I can like check off a to-do list that advances my goal of having more options for my personal life in the future. And for men that there is that ability to kind of like lose a year or two, just defer um, it, just defer it, just like, you know, tread water for a little bit. Your sperm will still be there <laughs> like when, <laughs> when the pandemic is done, which like God knows when it will be done. And that's, I know that some people at the beginning were like, it's just going to be a couple of weeks. It's just going to be a couple of months. I've always thought of it as something that would be indefinite and that is seeming more and more vindicated by the day. But then, yeah, when you have this limited looking window, then, you know, you can't just say like, oh, I can afford to lose one year. It's like, it could be one, it could be four years. Right. Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully not four years of COVID. I think that's such a good point, Claire. And I think that, especially when we were in sort of the thick of quarantine, you know, when things like really weren't open, we had very little, you know, face-to-face interaction in real life with the majority of the people that we care about. It was almost like the only things that at least I was noticing were people checking things off of sort of a list of moving life stages forward. Like, did you freeze your eggs? Did you move in with your partner? Did you get engaged? Like I, and I feel like I was hyper aware of the people around me and in my orbit who were doing those things. Did you get pregnant? Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this anxiety that was totally like self, you know, I put it on myself, but this anxiety that like, if I didn't have something to show at the mm-hmm. end of the year, that it, it was like, well, what did you do? Oh, you just, you just wasted all that time. Yeah. It's the personal life equivalent of that horrible, horrible thing that kept going around at the beginning of COVID that was like Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the great plague. And like, what are you going to do with all of your free time? That meme still haunts me. (laughs) Yeah. I did not write King Lear this year (laughs) at all. So, nor did I, you know, really do anything intentionally to advance my life in any way. <laughs> You're like, I kept a toddler alive. Yeah. Uh, I had, didn't have much choice there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Caitlin, did you, did you feel like a lot of 
pressure in that way? Or what was it like internal mostly? Or did you feel like there was an expectation that you would be like sort of keeping your life on a certain track? I mean, I think that, I don't know. It's funny. I feel like any sort of pressure that I had from like my family, I mean, I I grew up in Kansas. I grew up in a religious household, but I feel like they were putting a lot of pressure on in my twenties. And then once I passed 30, they're like, well, you know, it seems like you're taking an unconventional path. Like (laughs) You're going to be the cool aunt. (laughs) They've sort of, so like all of that pressure I feel has, has subsided. Um, And, you know, for me, I'm sort of like, I think, you know, during the pandemic, when, you know, and and the news continues to be so bleak and awful. (laughs) Sorry, something just crashed outside the door. Um, It, you know, the news is just so awful. I, you know, had dated, I dated a little bit during the pandemic, but like, you know, no promising leads. So just sort of the thought that there might be a future in which I would be with someone who I'd want to have a child with and I would want to bring a child into the world that we're living in. It just seems like kind of like nice and hopeful and like taking a step that that might be a possibility was nice. Um, So that I guess is like why I did it just like on the off chance I'm in that position that I'm like have the egg should I need them. Uh, You know, even though IVF is a whole other thing and um, you know, and I did not enjoy egg freezing. It was a really uncomfortable, weird process. Uh, and so I just like, I can't imagine IVF, like the, the people I know who have done it, it's like, just seems awful. But being in the position to be able to do it is quite nice. And I recognize that. And so having that as an option is, is good. Yeah, what, was, what was the process like for you? Like physically speaking, was it really grueling? I think like it was just really uncomfortable and I think you know you don't get really insight into your fertility until you're doing something like this so whether you're trying to have a child or you're going to do egg freezing you know it's not like you get a follicle count at your physical like you kind of just like don't have this insight until you begin the process so that in and of itself was kind of harsh like I remember you know like I went in and I got like my initial test where they were sort of giving me a snapshot of my fertility. And like, I was like, fine, but I wasn't like, you know, at the top of what I could be at my age group, just based on, you know, statistics. And I was like, oh my God, like, it's not like perfect. You know, like, <laughs> yes. you just, you I had know. that initial consultation and like the only thing that they can read on that first appointment, like they take your AMH levels, your hormone levels, but they don't give you that result for another few days. So all you get is your follicle count, which they say like changes every month. And it also can be affected by things like having an IUD, um, which is something I have and all these things, like you have all that information intellectually, but then I also was sort of like at the lower end of what's like, I was still, you know, not concerning, but it was like at the lower end of what they expect and what's good. And I burst into tears in the office and was just like, I have failed some tests. I didn't know I was taking. Uh, and that was a really bizarre feeling, especially as someone who feels ambivalent and Caitlin, I know from our conversations about this, you had a similar sort of reaction, like your emotions kind of surprised you. Yeah. I mean, I made it, I made it outside. And then I called my mom and I was like, 
the count was it the best and I was just like <laughs> you know which Aww. is like yeah it was just sort of this thing where it was just like am I in competition for the amount of eggs I could possibly produce like this is just <laughs> really about. but I think because you don't it's like the first time I got that information it wasn't like right. I was tracking my fertility up until that point it's just sort of like a bit of a shock yeah it's always easy to like just assume or imagine like wishful think like I'm probably the most fertile I could be for my age right like that's why would I have low fertility like what's wrong with me and you don't ever check so why would you assume differently exactly exactly yeah and I still don't know how fertile I am because I did eventually get pregnant without any interventions. It took a little while and they never, so there was never a check done. Like who knows, maybe it was like a one once in a blue moon sort of occurrence <laughs> that I even got pregnant or maybe I'm like super fertile. I just right, like, don't know. Knows? Why don't they tell us? Why don't they look into this more? Is it my is question. a really weird thing where they sort of sort of tell women like, you don't need to have any information until the moment you decide you might want to have a child. And it does make it very, very jarring. And also it makes you feel like you're going into these appointments, like with a, about really basic things about your body, about your health, and you're going in blind and you're like, mm -hmm. I don't know even what these processes entail quite. Like, I don't know what they'll feel like. There's not, especially with egg freezing, because it's still, you know, fairly new, um, especially, you know, for people who, who aren't having to freeze their eggs because of, um, chemotherapy, like it's very new. Mm -hmm. There is just, isn't a thing I really heard people talking about, at least in my circles until like the last two years. Um, yeah. Caitlin, what was your feeling like, as you were going through the process, like, were you surprised by the experience? Did you feel prepared? Or like you understood what was going to be going on? I read, I read as many articles and, you know, first person accounts as I could. I, I tried to ask as many questions as I could, but I think I was propelled just by like the fact that I wanted to get it done. And um, so I think like, you know, not much time lapse between my just sort of uh first appointment and then like actually starting my cycle I think only a few weeks um because she's like we started soon and I was like yes I'm on can you talk life. people through who might not be familiar with sort of like what the basic timeline is um for this stuff and like what you have to do yeah so it basically depends on like your your own cycle and for me I have an IUD I kept it in which like is a choice you can make like whether or not to keep it in they were like it's not going to impact you a great deal so I just kept it in and so then they kind of just choose a date um that they they sort of like are tracking your like the levels in your blood and all of that um your hormone levels and then you kind of just like are given a date range based on and so it's kind of like I'm like I'm trying to remember when and basically it's just like a window usually of like 10 days to two weeks on average where you're taking, because they're basically just taking all the eggs from that one cycle. And so you're kind of just taking the hormones to make sure they get as many eggs at once as possible. Does that make sense? Have I missed anything? <laughs> I'm like scanning the article. <laughs> 
That sounds right to me based on the pop culture depictions I've seen of egg freezing, the bold type, modern love. That was actually IVF, but um, yeah, I'm not, I don't think I, I would really know though. Yeah. Well, egg freezing it's is not just, talked about is just the it's first just part of IVF. Enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I don't feel it's like not. it's it's talked about enough that most of us have a really clear sense of what to expect. Yeah, and like, so as you're going through it, you know, you're taking hormones every day through shots. I was taking at first two different shots and then like uh, three different shots. Um, and basically they're trying to make sure your eggs get big together but not too big so that one of them leaves before the rest are ready so that's like this odd thing where like it starts out every two days then every other day that you're going in for blood work and getting an ultrasound which is just like uncomfortable um so it's a lot of needles which uh a lot of self-administered uh needles into your into your stomach Yes. And then you're getting blood drawn from your arms. Like by like the, my arms were so bruised by the end. Like when I finally got to my procedure, like the anesthesiologist had to go in like on my upper arm. Cause he was like, sorry, you have no pain. Oh left. no. <laughs> That's disturbing. <laughs> I know, it was awful. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of blood work. Oh my God. Every other day. And then every day. Yeah. And so you were having to like go into a clinic, like almost every day. Yeah. Yeah. And thankfully, you know, my, again, like this is just like where, you know, I, I know a lot of people would love to do this and I just feel really fortunate because my team was super understanding that I was doing this. They were very supportive and like, you know, I would not have morning meetings and, uh, you know, they were fine with it. So yeah, but you have to go into a clinic every day. Um, and another thing that's sort of interesting about the process is I had a couple of friends doing it around the time I was, and we all got different suggestions in terms of diet and what you should and shouldn't be doing. Like from um, your doctors? Yeah. So my doctor didn't give me anything about consuming caffeine, like whether or not to consume caffeine or alcohol. They said, you know, regular amounts of both are fine. Meaning if you're having like one to two a day of each, you're fine. Whereas a lot of my friends were told, don't drink, uh, don't have caffeine. And I was just like, oh, okay. And then even after the procedure, you're given like sort of dietary, like before the procedure, they're like high protein is helpful. Like try and like lay off carbs as much as possible. Um, but then once I got mine out, they're like, okay, you're good to go. Uh, whereas my friend was told to like stay mostly plant-based for like a week. So it's but just- why though? The eggs are already out. Like the Sorry. It just seems sometimes like the American medical establishment likes telling women what they can and can't put in their bodies just for kicks. Yeah. I mean, I was surprised though. And like, who knows, maybe it was because I was allowed to eat carbs after the procedure and baby, my body just took a while to heal, but it took me several weeks um, to like fully heal. Like my stomach mm-hmm. was ballooned so much, mm-hmm. even 10 days after getting the eggs removed. I looked like I was pregnant. I couldn't fit into any clothes. Like it took me a long time to, I remember sending a photo to my mom 10 days after I had gotten the eggs out. And she was like, oh my God, you look six months pregnant. Please go to the doctor in the morning. What happened? Oh God. I think what's so odd about, about egg freezing is that again, because it is, it's a newer thing that like women are doing in sort of 
the amount of numbers that you can sort of get a sense of how it affects people in large quantities. And I think it is so specific to your cycle. And there's so much about the science that is still kind of being figured out. Like they know it's safe, but the effectiveness, there's limited studies on, you know, cause they just don't have the data. Like, again, like women have only been doing this in large numbers for a certain number of years. So there's only at least so much data they can have. And it feels like, um, a lot of it is just sort of like, figure it out as you go, figure out what works for your body. And like, that's going to be kind of different for everyone. Um, and obviously yeah. like we are not doctors here on this podcast, but just anecdotally, <laughs> it, it feels like it's sort of, we're still in the little bit of the wild west of, of egg freezing. Yeah. And there's a lot about pregnancy we don't understand. And that's right. been going on for a long time. I yeah. feel like figuring think, out the uh, mysteries of the female body is not the highest I was priority. Say, <laughs> I think there's just been a lack of perhaps a lack of interest about women's <laughs> bodies in a way that, uh, has not applied to men. There's a lot of scientific interest historically in yeah. men's bodies and we well, are just okay. left to like figure it out. If we just don't have caffeine or carbs or alcohol, <laughs> which coincidentally are things that, uh, you know, men have never really thought women should get to have access to, uh, we won't have any health problems and it'll be fine. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm not saying that you should like get bombed when you're pregnant or anything, but, um, it does seem like there's like an over-enthusiasm about prescribing some of these things that is not always based in really clear science. I think um, that's definitely true. Uh, yeah. and I think, yeah, there's just a lot of, it's like, we don't have the information and there's also a lot of anxiety about women's bodies. So you put those two things together and it's just like really fertile ground for everyone to be freaking out about what women are consuming at like any stage of life. Yeah. Oh man. Um, the, uh, the, the question of the, the effectiveness is interesting to me because I think before we started uh, talking about this, uh, episode, I had sort of thought that it was extremely rare for an, a, you know, a woman to freeze her eggs, um, unfertilized, uh, not frozen embryos, but just freeze eggs and to eventually have one of them translate into a live birth. And like the numbers that I saw in, in these recent articles are, are much more favorable than I expected actually. Um, not the, you know, it's like a guarantee, um, the same is true of, of IVF. It's not a guarantee. Like there's basically no way to guarantee that you'll have a baby <laughs> no yeah. matter what the approach is. Um, but it's, you know, I, the number, and now I don't see it, uh, but I had it in one of the articles was like 30% or something, um, which is not bad. Like all things considered, <laughs> it's, it's not yeah. negligible. 34, 34%, a live birth rate of 34%. This is a, um, a 15 year study in September, 2020. So again, mm -hmm. like we're just starting to kind of get this longer term data. Um, and this was in the Lily article, the study showed that quote, 74% of eggs survived the freezing process and nearly 70% of those surviving eggs were successfully fertilized with a live birth rate of 34%, which is basically the same, uh, rate of success as IVF. So you're just looking at like IVF rates, which is it, it, it that is positive data. Yeah. 
Caitlin, is that something you were thinking about when you were making the decision or like, was the fact that you had sort of a a benefit available to you? Did that make it enough of an easier cost benefit analysis that you didn't feel the need to like overthink the possible outcomes? Yeah. I just, I felt like I didn't need to think too much about it. And, you know, they did when, you know, you start going through the process, they tell you that it is, you'll, you'll be more likely to have success if you freeze fertilized eggs. Um, but you know, if you're single, that's, yeah, that's what you're going to do. Just find some guy, yeah, just find know? a guy off the street, be like, just, that's just what you want, but your spurt, no questions to asked. have a kid with some guy that, you know, now, but in like five years, you know? Yeah. I mean, and you can freeze with a donor. I just didn't want to. So yeah. yeah, for me, it was like, you know, I have this benefit now. I'll just use it figure out next steps later. I would have done the same <laughs> thing, frankly. Yeah. It's interesting the like the, the expense and, and as you described kind of the logistical constraints of egg freezing, like that you have to go to a clinic every day at certain points in the process um, is so like cost prohibitive to a lot of, to a lot of people. And it's not covered in any way. Basically, as far as I could tell, like fertility treatments aren't really covered by Medicare. No. Um, and particularly not, not egg freezing. Um, and I think that this does kind of place it in this position of being seen as like a consumer good rather than a health treatment of some kind. And I, 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 I almost wonder if that plays into like the emotional reactions around it that like, you're going in to, to obtain this thing almost. And then they're like, oh, well, your body isn't good enough. Like I came in just to get my eggs frozen. And suddenly you're telling me that like something's wrong with me. Like it just, it's like, if you went in to get a, like a nose job and they were like, oh, I'm sorry, your nose is just ugly. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, you're like, I thought that's what I was here to like deal with, but you know, it's, it's treated as like something that that is purchased like a consumer good and not as like a way of addressing like the health or medical need in women. Right. And on a society level that seems to really shape the way that, that I think about it at least. Yeah. I think it shapes attitudes. It, it obviously shapes who ends up getting egg freezing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we know data shows that a very low percentage of women who undergo egg freezing are Latinx and black. Um, there was a, a study that found that just 4% of retrievals were, um, from Latinx patients and 7% black patients. And I think that's like, that's a massive racial gap. Um, and, that likely in a lot of ways comes down to like, which companies are providing this benefit, which workers are going to be able to spend the time to, and have the flexibility in their schedules, um, who is going to be able to pay out of pocket if their company doesn't offer, um, a subsidy. And that, that's a really shitty thing. It's a really shitty thing for this healthcare procedure to be treated as a consumer good that only the wealthy have access to. And it's, it is this like really odd thing. And I, 
feel like that probably also plays into why we are seeing this uptick in sort of like influencer marketing of egg freezing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's a, an aspirational right. service that's being marketed to, to women of our, of our demographic yeah. to be, to be blunt about it. I mean, having control over your fertility is treated as like a, a luxury product in this country. Like, you know, you can get uh, birth control if you can pay for it. You can get, I mean, thanks Obamacare, that is less true now, but like that is how uh, a very powerful political faction in this country would like it Mm -hmm. to be. You can get an abortion if you can pay for it. You can get um, birth control if you can pay for it. You can get fertility treatments if you can pay for it. And the result is a culture where women like us can plan our reproductive lives at a cost, often a very significant cost. But, you know, poor women, often black and brown women, are their reproductive health is treated in this really controlling and punitive way. Like they're at the whim of policy. Mm-hmm. They're at the whim of, uh, you know, lawmakers deciding what they, whether they do or don't like deserve to have children or whether they do or don't deserve to decide not to have children after they have right. the audacity to like have, have sex. Um, and that like, it's crazy right now to be having this really intense public conversation about our crashing birth rate. And meanwhile, like most women in this country can't access fertility treatments in any meaningful way because we are so obsessed as a culture with like controlling and limiting the fertility of, of black and brown people. And instead we have to like guilt white women into having babies earlier I like, was like what would the talking points of the right wing be if there there wasn't uh you know a birth rate among white women to panic about frankly it gives them quite a lot of steam uh yeah. by which to push other other harmful policies so <laughs> i don't know seems like an effective plan for them yeah it's just very depressing um, like you could definitely envision a world in which fertility was was treated as a genuine medical issue that was that was covered by our universal health care. But um, that's that's not what the politics of this country are set up to deliver to us. Um, so, yeah, so mostly we're seeing fertility treatments and, and egg freezing being treated as like part of living the lifestyle of someone like Becca Kufrin, right? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, (laughs) the waiting room, like when, you know, you would go in to get all your tests, it was very much like, you know, you could just tell that the other women were really affluent. It was treated as a luxury service and, you know, it was definitely like a icky sort of weird feeling about it. Yeah. I mean, that's why the, the fertility clinics that are kind of popping up have this very particular luxurious and like millennial woman girl boss aesthetic almost which like in some ways you know why shouldn't like every medical office that you go to be a pleasant place to be like that but it's clear that that is not the norm and that it's a specific aesthetic tailored to like boutique healthcare it's like the 
equivalent of going to a soul cycle class, but it's healthcare. And that feels really gross. Yeah. 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 It's um, just one, one of the many ways that our health system is broken, but you, you know, it's, that's just kind of like the, I feel like the liberal solution to our broken society is like, well, if you have enough money, then you can have a career and eventually have babies if you want them. And the conservative answer is, well, just don't have a career, you know, just like get married and have babies. (laughs) And uh, unless you're black and brown, in which case you need to be working, obviously, to justify your existence and, you know, having as few babies (laughs) as possible. Um, But like the liberal, like sort of answer to this is, yeah, just like buy the healthcare that you need in order to live the like aspirational feminist, like career ladder climbing lifestyle that that you choose for yourself. And that leaves out so many people and is also not, you know, there are people who are always going to want this kind of solution, you know, who are ambivalent about having kids for all kinds of reasons. Um, but there are also people who are ambivalent about having kids because it will affect their careers because our country is not set up to support working moms. And Mm -hmm. there are also people who are like, I'm going to have kids, but I need to put it off until really late to establish myself financially um, for the same reason. And so, you know, a solution that provided support for, for women to have egg freezing, but also, you know, universal childcare and, and access to family friendly workplaces, like, so that women could, could not delay having kids forever, um, just because they want to have a career, if that's what they want, or they they can delay them if they want to, not because they have a ton of money, or a, a workplace that's trying to lure them with fertility perks, but because that is, it's our human right to, to have control over our fertility. Right. I think like what we sort of always end up circling back to in every one of these conversations, even though we've always started with a slightly different topic, is the fact that policy-based solutions that support working mothers, in fact, would support everyone (laughs) and would in fact make the choice about whether or not to have children a less fraught one. Like as someone who feels ambivalent about kids, I really go back and forth and it's like very hard to make the decision one way or another. And the thing that's looming is that like, there is this biological imperative that will one day make the decision for me. And it just feels like either way, I won't be supported in the way, like by my culture by my society mm-hmm. I won't be supported uh, by my government I won't be supported in the ways that I'd like to be uh, and either way I'll be like rendered invisible in some way and that is a really like depressing thing and I think when you get into your get like solidly into your 30s that's something that feels like it's much more looming and perhaps something that feels even more urgent when you're going through this period of your life during a global pandemic where you just feel like time is sort of slipping by in this insane blur and there's so much that you might want to do that you that you can't um Mm. and I think that just like makes it all feel 
more urgent and more fraught. Yeah. Yeah. I really wasn't that stressed about turning 30, which happened several years ago, to be clear, not 30. (laughs) Um, I don't think I was prepared for how quickly I would start to feel like the societal shift of attention away from me, which like, I'm not, I, and I also was like, I've never been like the hot girl. I've never gotten a lot of attention for my cool hipness or my beauty. And so like, what am I going to be losing? But there is still that sense that you're given as a 20 something woman. That's like, the world is your oyster, like kick ass, like date a bunch of guys, like everything is there for you. And then once you get into your thirties, there's just like this palpable sense that like the party's over, like hope you're happy with where you've landed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, no. And you're like this intellectually, you're like, this is insane. Right. I'm young. I have the majority of my life, hopefully if I am lucky ahead of me, like there are many things coming. There are many beautiful things about aging. Like there are many things that you can do in your life far after, you know, 35. And yet it's so hard to escape that, that feeling. Yeah. It's very frustrating. It's, it's I, like, it's like it the is... minute you turn 31, like 40 is like looming. It's like, we just fucking watched <laughs> a dude on the bachelor who's in his forties be like 33. It's the, as a woman, that's the same as 40. Yeah. I was this like, 33 year old woman is very close in age to me, a 40 year old. That's no. dating. That's dating a person of the same age to me. Whereas like, imagine a 33 year old man on that show meeting a 40 year old woman. He would not be like, they would never, they would never cast a 40 year old woman, but, but yeah, it wouldn't be treated as if they were essentially equivalent. Um, And it does seem like, I do feel like it goes back to fertility so much because it's, yes, it's the idea of having kids is so central to how we, we see people's life stories and so it's almost like you're no longer a main character once your fertility window has passed. And for men, that continues. They, they could pay in could your 70s, in you their 70s. Main character energy <sighs> till you literally drop dead. Yeah. And it's like, what if we just like didn't fixate so much on whether you might have kids at any given time? Then maybe we could have more interest in women who are over 40 in our culture. I'm asking for too much here. I'm on board. <laughs> like I, yeah, I personally uh, would love to still be considered a human worth listening to, talking to, thinking about for like the latter, the latter full half plus of my life. Like it's really, it's really a crazy thing. And it's such just like a stupid marker and it's like on the one hand it does feel arbitrary but on the other hand it's it's sort of not arbitrary because as you said Claire it is centered around this like peak fertility and it is totally centered around this anxiety like whether or not you have kids you're still quote past your prime once Mm. your fertility window has closed and it really reinforces this false idea that like women are only useful in as much as they reproduce babies specifically white ones Um, yeah and that is a really really like depressing thing to come up against even 
even as like we live in a city where there are so many working women, so many women who are having children later, so many women who are deciding not to have children and not being like shame, still living full lives and having like incredible adventures and careers. And yet this is like such a strong cultural narrative that it's kind of hard to escape. Yeah. I mean, did you guys have these feelings around 30? Do you have them like looking forward around 40? Like, do you, do you feel like anxiety around these kind of landmark birthdays that I think women are sort of taught to fear? I had it less with 30 than I do looking ahead, honestly. Like I did have, I had a minute, like I think the right after I turned 30, I had a little bit of anxiety. I, you know, I was like, I'm single and and every, every year this happens to me almost on every birthday. Like <laughs> you sort of take stock. You're like, what have I accomplished? Um, I think I've, I've been able to move away from that, that self-imposed anxiety a little bit as I've gotten older but I certainly felt it a little bit, but I think frankly, I feel a lot more anxiety staring towards 40 because I feel like there is this entire narrative of just like, yeah, you're no longer at the center of what we care about. You've passed being able to be the most, the most interesting. Um, And I don't even know if I'm like, I need to be the most interesting, but there's just this like weird sense of like Mm -hmm. the window is closing. You have, you know, a few more years of your thirties, you have to make all of these big life decisions or they might be made for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though a lot of that is like a fake pressure, it still feels, feels very real as much as I've tried to like do the work to untangle it. What about you, Caitlin? Yeah. I mean, I think like you said, there's always the taking stock of your life when you turn another year. Uh, <laughs> but I think for me, the biggest thing, you know, growing up though, I was raised to like have aspirations and go to school and get an education and all of that, you know, getting married and having children was always, you know, like that was like a big thing that I was expected to do. And I think like trying to overcome that conditioning is hard and you kind of feel like you haven't achieved something that you were really definitely supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, think like intellectually I'm like no that's like that would be great if it happens but there's so many other things that can happen in life um so just kind of I think I've been able to sort of let that go over the years and you know who knows on 40 like if I turn 40 and I don't have children or family or whatever maybe I'll have a bit of a crisis who knows but uh I kind of don't I guess like feel the anxiety of it I think there's so much going on and I feel like the pandemic has certainly taught me that trying to make a plan for the future is foolish. God laughs. Yeah. Between the pandemic and climate change, it's like really fuck your yeah. plan. Like uh, yeah. who, who knows? We gotta, we gotta just enjoy, enjoy life. <laughs> enjoy while, while we while can. Here. Yeah. It's interesting that like, I, I think that if I didn't have kids at all right now, I would definitely be, cause I always thought I would have them and it was a priority for me. I'm sure I would be freaking out right now if, if I weren't there in my life, but at the same time, 
I'm still freaking out. I'm like, having kids is not making me immortal. I'm still getting older every year. And like, now I'm spending this time in my life when I'm still pretty cute and fashionable, you know, like got my, got myself together. I'm spending a lot of it potentially pregnant and, and in like new mom disarray. And so it's given me like definitely a certain amount of solace to feel like I'm on, on my plan track, but then I did not maybe expect that I would still feel in acute anxiety about time slipping away. It's like, no matter how much I'm doing the stuff I thought I would do, none of that is keeping me from getting older, which, um, Right. I, I have think- not resolved myself. I haven't <laughs> resigned myself to death is ultimately the problem. That's what we're really talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> My mortality is still. Yeah, I, I'm still making peace with that as well. Um, and, but I just do think also like aging as a woman in this culture holds an, another layer of yeah. anxiety is that are yes, in part self-imposed, but also in part very real because we cannot control how others look at us or how others deem us to be worthy or less worthy. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately like having kids, not having kids, having a partner, not having a partner, these things can maybe contribute to how others see us and, and to how we, our self-conceptions, but like, we're still going to be women aging in this society. And that's still going to come with it. And the having children thing is like the ultimate false promise that society makes to women. That's like, yes, you're getting older. You're not going to be the beautiful young debutante anymore, but like, just do what we want you to do. Like have the baby, like become the mother. The mother is a venerated figure and like, you'll, you'll maintain your relevance in some way. That's bullshit. Like moms are completely put on the shelf. Um, the same way yeah, you, you've that, accomplished that any your purpose, woman. Claire. Go, <laughs> right. Go it's not like people stay interested in you if you're a mom, <laughs> but like I have those times when I'm like, oh, people would be interested in me more. Like they'd see me more as a whole person if I were a, a child free 33 year old woman. And I don't think that that's really true either. That like, as you guys are, are describing that, like, it's really just a function of aging. And like, you can try to, to escape it by, you know, focusing on your, your children or by focusing on your career or whatever self-actualization, but society is still going to be like, "Mm, I see a mid to late thirties woman over there and I'm not interested. (laughs) I'm going to look somewhere else. (laughs) Exactly. I hear ultimately that becomes freeing. And so I am like, waiting. I am waiting for that moment. I'm sure there will be many women who are older than us who can give us lots of good yeah. Have good thoughts on that. Um. Yeah. Tell us right. We have bad attitudes about it. Yeah. Um, it's true. I have a terrible attitude. Um. <laughs> That's what these podcasts are for. Just being <laughs> honest. Like I don't like, the, the, I think we can be honest about the anxieties that we feel without saying like, yes, these are the correct way to feel. It's just like a fucking reality. It's really hard to unlearn your programming and yeah. it's really hard to be, com- to like, actively be battling against everything that the culture is telling you all of the time. Yeah. It's hard. It's It's hard hard out here. Um, we have a little bit more time. Do, do you guys want to talk about regrets? I always want to talk about regret. I do. Uh, Especially in that gleeful of a tone. (laughs) Regret. (laughs) 
I, cause I think that, you know, we've had these conversations uh, publicly happening around like, should we be more open about moms regretting that they have kids? Like what about women regretting that they never had kids? Um, and one thing that interests me about egg freezing is that I have talked to, to women who say, you know, that, that it was a sort of way of addressing the fear of regret, the anxiety of regret in a certain way, um, which is just this big specter that tends to loom over women in their thirties who haven't had kids yet or ever. And like, how, how, how do you even cope with having that much pressure and fear of regretting your choices looming over this like very busy time of your life? I don't know kick the can that's been been (laughs) (laughs) yes that's it (laughs) no I was actually just having this conversation with a good friend of mine who's a couple years older than than me the other day and she actually did two rounds of egg freezing during the pandemic you know I've done none but we were talking about she just started seeing someone that she's excited about but like this question of, of children and she's in her late thirties is always there. And we were talking about kind of that balance and the way that the fact that she like has these eggs is sort of like taking at least a little bit of a mental weight off of her. Like it removes that pressure just a tiny bit. And I think that like, you can't really talk about egg freezing without talking about regret because so much of the fear around regret is the fact that we feel this biological clock. We feel that there, that decisions need to be made in a very specific amount of time. And I think being able to give ourselves more time to make that decision is a really natural way to want to ease that anxiety. Mm -hmm. Like the decision will still have to be made, but maybe I don't have to make it right now. Maybe I can buy myself more time to figure out the other pieces of my life that I want to see. Like a partner, like whether I want marriage, what I, you know, to get a little bit more money, like time is the thing that I think I am always craving more of in my life, especially in the pandemic, especially in my thirties. And Mm. I feel so much fear about regret. And I'm worried no matter what decision I make, I might regret it. So I don't know. I think that's why egg freezing like appealed to me in the first place, if I'm being honest. Yeah. I I always think of <laughs> when I got offered an internship at HuffPost and I, at that time, wanted to work in book publishing and I was 22 years old, little idiot. And I was waiting on hearing back from like two book publishing interviews. And I got offered this HuffPost internship with like a deadline I had to answer. And it was clear that I wasn't going to hear back from these two jobs that I thought would be like my dream jobs. And I remember just like staying up all night, like hyperventilating and crying. I was like, I can't I can't say which decision is going to lead me to regret right now. 
And, but I had, I don't have time to wait for the situation to sort it out. And it's going to define possibly a big part of my life. And I ended up thinking, you know, I have to take the offer. That's the offer. And I did. And here I am. Uh, Do I regret it? I still hyperventilate with panic from work all the time because of the work I got into thanks to HuffPost. So maybe (laughs) it was a bad decision, but it's shaped every part of my life. It shaped who I married. And, you know, it's just the, 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 the stress of making such a big decision under such a tight deadline. That's like every woman in their thirties. I feel like we're just (laughs) constantly, if you are someone who either wants children or thinks they maybe want children, we are all living under this, like, yeah, this deadline. And we're, and, and it's like, you're not really sure where the deadline is, but you're like, right. I, think it might, I think it might be, it might have passed soon. already. No one's yeah. checked your fertility. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, and the whole culture is like yelling at you constantly. Like you're going to regret it if you don't have a baby and you're like, shut up. Like, right. And then you're like, wait, am I, or did I just like always think I would have a baby? Right. <laughs> It's hard to disentangle. I mean, when you think about like having the potential of one day having kids, like, do you think that the fear of regret plays heavily into that? Or like, what, what, what do you think would, would motivate you to have kids um, as opposed to, to kind of embracing a a child-free existence? I mean, I think having a partner that wants kids would, would mm-hmm. be the yeah. ultimate. Um, yeah, it's like, and I think it is interesting, you know, like there's moments where I'm like, well, I live in New York City. It's like home of so many single women. It's like, am I in the best place to like meet someone? And I'm like, do I even like really want kids? Or again, is this something that I've just been told throughout life that I, that I want, um, you know? I've certainly never come close to having a child. Like maybe that's intentional. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's a message. And it's such an odd thing because we, we know intellectually that ultimately like any choice you make means gaining something and also means giving something up. And I think like career wise, I've lived my life very much like, well, I'll just sort of take opportunities when they come my way. Like I frankly haven't been the most active at wanting to like, change great you know I stayed at HuffPost for 10 years till they paid <laughs> they paid me to leave um <laughs> and, and then like we had to figure it out and I was like okay just take these opportunities and it, there's something about making a very active decision that is like even somehow more terrifying even though like probably it's healthy to make active decisions about infertility especially but it just feels in like the abstract, yeah. it feels almost scarier. Cause it's like, no, there's not going to be a sign. There's not going to just be a right answer. Like I'm going to have to make a choice and then I'm just going to live with that choice. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be good things that come from it. And there's going to be really hard things that come from it. Yeah. That was sort of how I approached having kids. And I think that there's something a little bit Catholic about it. Like there's something a little bit like I sim- I take the veil and then my life is, you know, exists within certain constraints that are purifying, you know, like there's definitely an element of that about having kids for me um, that like, you know, I knew if I waited exactly until I felt like 
I wanted my whole life to be centered around raising a child, I would be waiting forever. Like I like my creature comforts. I like sleeping in. And I was like, I have to embrace this restriction on my life actively and know that it will come with suffering. Um, (laughs) But, you know, at, at the same time, like, I don't know. It's, uh, there's something really fulfilling about having done that, but also like, there's so much pressure to make that choice that it's hard to know that you're making it because you really want that kind of constraint because you want to challenge yourself or because you know that like everyone is telling you that one day you'll look back and wish you had done it. And And it's hard to make an active decision under those circumstances, I think. It's hard to make an affirmative decision. Have you guys read uh, Motherhood by Sheila Hetty? Yes, but so long ago now. (laughs) I read it like four times when it came out because I was writing about it. Um, But that's, it's, she's like, I think around late thirties when she writes it and her character um, modeled on herself is thinking about whether to have a child. And I found it a little maddening at the time because she like so clearly to me did not want to have a child. And I was like, why are you writing a whole book about this? You definitely don't want children. But what kind of happens is that she begins, she feels like at the end, like she's reached a stage of life where people won't expect her to have kids anymore. And all of the weight of thinking about it just like disappears, like evaporates. And I, th- I mean, in a way that's actually very interesting to me that like, it's hard to make an affirmative decision to flout that kind of level and depth of like ingrained social expectation fully. Like you almost do have to kind of wait until the point in your life when the world stops asking you about it so that you can be free. (laughs) And that doesn't feel like a very affirmative decision, but it may be the only like way that we're allowed to make that kind of decision in such a like baby obsessed environment. I don't know. No, I think you're, I think you're actually really right. And I think there is some part of me that's like, well, at a certain point, if I don't do it, the decision will just be made for me. And then I guess I <laughs> won't be thinking about it anymore. Like there is something that sounds freeing about that. It is. But then well, I is. also don't want someone to tell me I can't have a kid. Right. So. Well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> coincidentally, the age at which you start getting judged for having a child. They're like, yeah. certainly, certainly a woman of your age should not be having a child. Like, right. How dare you? Like that child days. deserves a sprightly mother of 27. Yes. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. No, it's definitely that's so true. Um, there's no, there's no escape really at any point. Um, you just have to kind of hope that you find a path that that allows you to live without excessive scrutiny, but you don't have much control over that in this in this world. Right. It's like you do what you can, you build the community that you can to support you in whatever decisions you make or whatever decisions sort of like end up made. Um, And you just kind of forge ahead because we don't really have another option. Like we are all aging. We are all going to, we can resist making decisions. We can resist getting older. We can resist becoming, you know, quote unquote invisible. Um, And yet like time will still pass. And 
it's probably a lot more fun if you can kind of make peace with that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys feel, do you guys feel like it's like embarrassed about regret? Like, do you think that there would be shame for you in looking back and, and regretting the choice you made about having kids in some sense, like, or is, is it just the regret itself that's painful? Hmm. Do you mean like, what, wait, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. Like, I guess that I always perceive it as, and maybe this is just a commentary on me, that there's something sort of humiliating about like making a big life choice and then conceding that it was the wrong one, you know, that like, you don't want other people to look at you and be like, oh, look how tragic, like she never had children and now she's so sad about it. Um, You want to be able to be like, hell yeah, I didn't have children and I never think twice about it. I've lost zero sleep, you know, not just because it's nice to lose zero sleep um, over a regret you have, but also because of the social stigma that's attached to, to regret. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. And I think that's definitely part of it. And I think that's why I have envy actually um, of people who know they definitely don't want kids. Mm just like the certainty sounds really nice to me because then you just forge ahead towards the thing that you want or you don't want. Whereas like existing in this sort of liminal space and just waiting for enough time to pass so that the decision's been made for you one way or the other, or like waiting for a partner that will have stronger feelings than you uh, to sway you one way or the other is like, it's an uncomfortable position to be in. And yet the older I've gotten, the more solidly ambivalent I've become. What about you, Caitlin? Yeah, I mean, I think there is, you know, I was just talking with a friend about how sometimes at work situations, and and I haven't dealt with this really, but uh, there's, if you're single, you know, you're not really sort of given that priority in terms of like the workload. It's like, well, you don't have children to go home to, or like you don't have, and my friend has been dealing with this. And yeah, there is like this, um, you know, raising another human is this incredibly important, awesome thing. And so missing out on that might make you seem like you're doing something less important with your life or like what sort Mm -hmm. of purpose, Mm -hmm. like, are you having, especially as a woman of a certain age? Um, But I always think of this study, I think it was written up in maybe New York Times Magazine, but there was this happiness study where like having a child makes you so unhappy for so many reasons because you're giving up on your creature comforts. You're giving up on the things you like to do, but you do it. And so you don't have that question of what it's like. And Mm. that can ultimately, it's sort of like nuts out. Um, You know, you'll be happy either way. Right. Like if you don't have kids, then you get to keep a lot of the things that make you happy that you'd otherwise be giving up. But if you do have kids, then you don't have that question. You, you don't, don't have the question. Would, yeah. Exactly. That's so You've experienced it all in a way. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, it's like, I, I feel like there's, you know, I've certainly like had many, plenty of conversations with people who are just like, oh, like, like even my primary care doctor, when she found out that I froze my eggs, she was like, oh, you don't have any prospects. 
you know? And it's just like, I was I'm like, still okay, so well. upset by that. I was like so affronted on your behalf when you first told me that, like find a new doctor. That's yeah, no, that's really exactly judgmental. what I did. <laughs> she wants to know what, if you, if you have like someone you made a marriage pact with in college or like someone you're chatting with on Tinder or like what's prospect even like me. She wants you to like context. pull out your dating apps and be like this one, she dates with this one ghosted. Like, oh God. Yeah, exactly. You're like, um, let me tell you why this long-term relationship didn't work out. I'll give you all the details. Like, let me justify love. my choices to you, my healthcare provider. Ugh. Yeah. So there's, there's like that sort of like where people feel it's the most uncomfortable thing I think is dealing with other people's unnecessary sympathy. It's like, yeah, like it's, I'm fine. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable when you're uncomfortable around me. Um, yeah. Or feeling bad or like I'm missing out on something, you know, when, you know, it's not really anything that I've been actively pursuing. So Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like it's such, it can be such a tightrope between like moms and non-moms to navigate that question of like, do I feel sorry for you or jealous of you? Like, I feel like it always comes down to that question. And I I had like a really, uh, like did not really cover myself in glory in an interaction with a friend, um, I hadn't seen in a while recently, um, where I sort of was like, Oh, like I've been following your Instagram. You've been like, FOMO, like all the, like your parties and stuff, like, yay. Like just kind of just like, you know, making conversation. And, and then I, like, it became clear that it was like actually a very insensitive thing to say, because like, I am in a position that a lot of women our age would like to be in, like where I have a kid and I'm married. And So there is this like thing that's like, I was sort of like, I'm jealous of you. And then it was sort of like, well, that's not really an appropriate like way to relate to me. But also if I was like, I'm sorry for you, that wouldn't be right either. Why does it always like come down to those things though? It's like, you're, you're dealing with someone who's in this very different situation. It's so easy to reach for like pity or jealousy and not to just a more neutral dynamic almost. Right. I think we're all trying to relate to each other all the time, right? We're all trying. And and we do that by sort of reaching for our our own feelings and like projecting those feelings onto the other person. And I've certainly found myself in a position where like a new mom friend of mine felt I was being, you know, insensitive to her needs or not like understanding her. And I've had to check myself in that way too. And it's just it's just hard because we're all sort of put into a defensive posture around these conversations. Um, yeah. I don't think anyone wants to be pitied, but also you right. don't want to feel like if, if you're, if people are like, Oh, well, like congrats on your amazing life. Yeah, you're like, your well, life my is life perfect. is also difficult. Like, yeah. Especially like- right now. It's like, everyone is having a hard time. Everyone has mm-hmm. been having a hard time. And so it is hard to know how to how to kind of approach that. Cause you don't want to just like project your fantasies of what a different life could be or could feel like onto another actual human in front of you. Who's like presumably your friend who you care for in a real way. Hopefully. 
There's a, or at least someone you don't yeah, want to be hopefully. a dick to. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, and I think it goes like part of it goes back to what you said at the beginning, Kayla, which is like, we're all sitting here, like looking at our friends' lives and like imagining having access to the good parts of those lives yeah. and like how many nights during the pandemic have I been like, oh my God, all I want to do is order a pizza for one and watch seven hours of Netflix and not have anyone need anything from me. But, you know, there are a lot of <laughs> things I would hate about that situation. And there are a lot of things I love about my situation now um, that I take for granted. And so we're all just like, re- like peering into each other's lives and either seeing only the good parts or only the bad parts, depending on what we like need to feel about our own lives at that moment. Right. I guess. It's really just like about ourselves. It's all <laughs> just about ourselves. It's just about ourselves. Um, I want to give a shout out to this book that I just finished ghosts. It's a novel by Dolly Alderton. And one of the central relationships in it is between a woman who is dating like in and out of a relationship with a guy who's like sort of ghosting her and her childhood best friend who has moved out of London and is pregnant with her second child. And there's like so many conversations and just like these two women just fundamentally missing each other for large parts of the book and like being unintentionally like insensitive to each other. And I was just really, I was like so struck by it. It was, it was just a really like great depiction um, kind of of the fraught dynamics that come up, especially when you're in your thirties and you sort of diverge from people that your, your life has felt very parallel to for a long time and like how complicated it can be to navigate that. And also how you can ultimately come back together with those people and like center empathy. Um, and a lot of that is just like about listening to each other. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, it's like the, uh, this was explored in movie form, right? When that Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman movie, what's that, what's that movie? It's always on cable where they like pee in the same fountain and they switch lives and like <laughs> oh, I one of them, like one. <laughs> the one, the change up. Oh my one God. One of them has like a family and one of them is like a swinging bachelor and they're like jealous of each other's lives. Right. And then they switch bodies. And of course the family man like realizes that dating is very stressful <laughs> and the, uh, the swing and single man realizes that being married to Leslie Mann is not all it's cracked up to be, you know? So <laughs> They they learn that they have been so. What you're saying is not that men, seeing the fullness of each other are the real victims here. Men are- <laughs> uh, so has- glad so glad we arrived here. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we try to end every podcast in that place with sympathy <laughs> for the men, um, but not pity. Um, pity is not human a humanizing lens, um, and I think that that is a really uh, important point, Caitlin, that I may have trampled on a little bit. That like. It's, it's so popular to just be like all these poor, sad women who aren't, haven't fulfilled their, their biological destiny. Um, but that is such a, a narrow and reductive way of looking at, at women's lives. Even if you, if, if a woman does feel regret around that one thing, that doesn't mean she hasn't lived a full life and, and with many joyful regrets, things in right. it. Sometimes yeah. we have regrets. Like it's weird that this one choice has sort of 
become a stand-in for like a referendum on like the enjoy of your life. You know, yeah. did you live a good life? Do you have regret about this one thing? Like, why is that the only central question? There are so many questions to be answered throughout our lives. Um, and I think the more we can just kind of open up options for women, for frankly, for people of all gender identities um, to have access to the care that they desire and need and, you know, the better, the better we'll be. Yeah. And of course the other big regret, did you end up with that hot guy who dangled from a Ferris wheel to ask you out when you were a teenager? And if not, like, was your whole life a waste? I mean, yes, I I've already answered mine. Yes. Yeah. Mine was mostly a waste because I was never like appealing enough for anyone to do that to me in high school. So that's actually the bigger problem. I wasn't hot enough in middle school. That's where all the difficult thing about being in your thirties is you're like, have, (laughs) is that never going to happen now? Like I thought maybe when I was like 28, I was like, it could still happen sometime in the future. Like Ryan Gosling is just around the corner. (laughs) He's out there and he's looking (laughs) for his, his Mrs. Right. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Any, any final thoughts on, on, on egg freezing uh, and the biological clock before we wrap up? I think we covered pretty much everything. I agree. Um, I think this was a fantastic, fantastic conversation. It was a little bit winding as uh, every conversation Claire and I have tends to be. Caitlin, thank you for, uh, (laughs) for hanging in there with us and experiencing our, (laughs) it was so fun having you. Um, So fun getting the band back together. I wish we could do this every week. Me too, but we'll definitely have to have you back on to talk about something else because this has been a treat. Next time I get a surgical procedure, you know. (laughs) I was going to say maybe something less uh, (laughs) less medically traumatic to remember. (laughs) No, we will only have you on to share all of the details of your medical care with the public. (laughs) That's what this podcast is for. So, uh, and on that note, I think that that is that is it for this episode of Rich Text. Thanks so much for following along with our series about bridging the motherhood divide. You can find other episodes from this series on our Substack, clarinemma.substack.com. And of course you can um, find our other work on our podcast. Love to see it with Emma and Claire. We'll be back soon.